Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Uh, Okay, so um, I said that we would probably move on to talk about these two um, these two things propitiation and forgot the other word now atonement um, however as as I was um, studying the last two days just getting my thoughts together even though I've got a lot of information on that stuff um, I found myself um, you know kind of you chasing these things seeing some other things that that I hadn't seen the connection that we need to introduce on the way to talking about some of the stuff we need to ultimately talk about. So I want to introduce what I think is another aspect of of, of this model um, tonight. Now, um, you'll be the first to see it. So uh, we're kind of laboratory working this a little bit together. Um, I think I've got my head around it a little bit, but you know, we'll see how we go um, as we as we pursue it. So, just by means of um, obviously, we've got about two hours, thirty, two hours, forty minutes of teaching contained in in this. So, I um, you know obviously don't want to recap too too extensively, um, except just to bring us back into the mindset that that uh, what I said to you was that. You know, when Martin Luther, uh, during the Reformation from 1517, um, said that, um, that when we try to mix the law and the gospel and faith and works, it creates more mischief than a man's mind can comprehend. That Luther, in wrestling with trying to, what I call, redeem the gospel, which I think is a process that is ongoing, um, redeeming the gospel from tradition, redeeming the gospel from... Um, uh, emphases that have taken it down certain certain lines is important. So um, I just liked what Martin Luther said. He, he introduced the idea that mischief was taking place. Now, I believe after a long time in ministry and, and a lifetime in church that, that um, having embraced that, I recognize that there has been mischief. There's been mischief in the use of scripture. There's been mischief in emphasis that we were given. And all really to try and protect something that we were supposed to be separated from in the new covenant. So everything on this side of this line um, should never be mixed with anything on this side of the line. Now, of course, we think we have an obligation because of history to somehow hold on to this stuff. But actually, there is a line that cuts us off from that stuff. So... So we're supposed to live in all these wonderful things that we talked about, original blessing and freedom from slavery and revelation of righteousness. Uh, but I introduced to you um, what I came to, that, that on this line that divides what I call truth from not truth, so it doesn't mean there isn't true things in here, but it, it's not the truth that makes you free. This will never make you free, okay? will only ever bring you into bondage, slavery, it will, it will bind you because you're always living under a system of right and wrong. And therefore, whether we appreciate it or not, we are trying to earn favor. 
So, you know, you've got the basic model of all deities, which is, which is the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased. So we, we superimpose Jehovah, Yahweh, into that. And that you'll be rewarded for doing good and you'll be punished for doing bad. Well, as I've said to you many, many times, if that's the God of the Bible, he differs not one bit from any other God in any other religion at any other time in history. My, um, my cry to you would be that, that the God who is the Abba, the Father, the Daddy of Jesus is different. He's an ungodlike God. And if he is, then he can't, he can't be bound within this model, which you could go to any religion in the world and superimpose this. You couldn't this, okay? So, so there is a line that divides this. Now, what I said to you is my, my belief is this, that there are three datum points on the line. A datum point is something from which you take measurement. It's an established point that you measure everything from that, okay? And those three datum points in, in the narrative of Scripture and therefore in the overarching story of the Bible is creation, incarnation, and resurrection. Now, of course, the question naturally came in, and we'll deal with that a little bit um, tonight. We talked about it a little bit last time we were together on this subject. Is why isn't crucifixion in there? Well, because that's not a datum point. That's a point within the process, but it's not the point of the process. So we talked about how all these three, uh, creation, incarnation, and resurrection, have the same elements working within them. You understand incarnation is not nativity. See, the problem is we think incarnation, we think nativity, Jesus born of a virgin. Now, now the nativity was an incarnation, but it's not the whole revelation. Incarnation is really best described by, by John in the Gospel of John in the first chapter when he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was, was God, without him nothing was made that has been made, but the Word became flesh, right, and dwelt amongst us. Incarnation comes more from the French and the Latin, because of course in, in French, carne is meat. It's the meat, the flesh, the meat, the flesh. So incarnation is when the Word becomes flesh. Now, the whole element of the Gospel is not that we are separate from the life of God, it's that we are invited into the life of God. This gospel says you invite God into your life. This gospel says God invites you into his life. See, big difference. So when you're inviting God into your life, you're struggling with, with a sense of worthiness. You, you struggle with the issue of sacrifice. All that kind of stuff to, to make yourself worthy of, of receiving God into your life. But on this side, when God invites you into his life, that is an act of grace, that's an act of favor, where all that needs to be done is done by him. You are simply invited in. Just like if you're invited to someone's home for a meal, you don't expect to go and cook the meal. You expect to arrive and you are a guest. So you are provided for, you don't provide for yourself. So we have to get an understanding that this gospel here on this side of grace and truth is God invited us into his life. And when we accept, all of this becomes a reality. 
When we live in the we, ex we invite God into our life, all this troubles us consistently. What's right, what's wrong? Are we keeping the law? You know, are we dealing with sin? Are we righteous enough? Are we praying enough? So there's a huge difference even in the outworking of these, these two understandings of the gospel. So incarnation was always the issue because it was, we were never meant to be separate from God, but as God was incarnate in Jesus, as the word became flesh in Jesus, God's desire has always been that his word and who he is becomes flesh in us, okay? God incarnate. So, so Paul puts it this way, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word in you, bringing all the hope of what is the manifestation of the Father. Because in John 1, it says that he was full of grace and truth. And we saw the glory of the Father when he was incarnate. Now, of course, uh, resurrection is, is life from the dead. And that's a kind of incarnation because it's life comes into something dead and what was dead becomes alive. Creation is a similar thing because in the creation story, into the nothingness, into the emptiness, the word comes and the word becomes flesh. We see it as trees and humans and animals and streams and lakes and rivers and planets. But the word became flesh. In Jesus' resurrection, the word became flesh. Okay? The word of resurrection became flesh in Jesus because he rose from the dead. Now... We also said in the process of this that, that, um, that the message of the early church was predominantly Christ is risen. And we explained that this way by saying that um, depending which statistics you use, at the time of Jesus there were approximately 21 messiahs occurred at, at and around the time of Jesus within, within the, the, the Judean culture. So, to say, you know, we have a Messiah and our Messiah was crucified uh, wasn't going to make the news very much because that was not an uncommon occurrence. A, for somebody to claim to be the Messiah to the Jews and B, for them to finish up crucified. But to be raised from the dead was a totally different story. That was news. That was not heard. Life from the dead. So, so we talked about how resurrection became for probably the first first hundred years was the major emphasis of the gospel and that um, in line with that, the first crucifix in, in archaeology that we know of on a Christian tomb did not occur, occur until the 400s um, in the catacombs in Rome. So... Our heavy emphasis on the cross as the symbol was not the heavy emphasis of the very early part of the church. So what we said was the gospel also has a different emphasis because rather than it being based in death, it's based in life. Okay. So again, all of that stuff is online. You can go and uh, listen to it and watch it if you wish to, um, to review all that stuff. Um, so tonight, I... Um, I want to take us a step further because I was thinking about how I want to explain to you some of the elements of the, the big question that's not always a question if you're uh, a very accommodating person or if you were raised very strongly in a Christian tradition, but why the cross? Why blood? Uh, seems obvious to us, and there are theories around that, but we need to wrestle with that in the context of this model. Okay. 
because most of the models that we have been given about why Jesus died and what was happening in his death have come from here, okay? They've all come from here. So it's all based in man is originally sinful, uh, God is angry at man, somebody's going to have to pay. So, you know, ultimately you come up with the model that therefore, you know, God punished his son um, because he was so angry and to get rid of his anger, rather than beating up on us, he beat up on his son. Now, that's a wonderful story, but I'm not sure that's entirely true. Because um, the models of even ancient religions were all about angry gods and ritual child sacrifice. Now, it may look different, sound different, be a lot prettier, but I could argue that many models of the cross are simply an angry God with a ritual child sacrifice. And that the God's angers are then appeased once the child sacrifice has been given. Do you see what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm not diminishing the work of Christ. I'm not diminishing the character of Christ nor the power of the cross. I'm just putting some questions as to how we have embraced what we think happened at the cross and how I can overlay for you um, pagan models and heathen models that this is just a prettier way of saying what they have said in worse ways. You know, we wouldn't be comfortable with and so they took him to the top of a volcano and threw him in, um, you know, to appease the gods. But you look, at, you look at Aztec and Inca history and you'll see that that was very common. The way you appeased the gods was by a pure sacrifice. So the idea of a pure sacrifice comes in and, and mostly therefore... A child was preferred because, um, because they were considered to be young enough to be pure. Now, of course, a virgin was the next choice, which is probably why in the culture all the girls were trying not to be virgins because you were likely to finish up in the offered to the gods. So it was kind of a double-edged sword. So, so can you see that we mustn't, we mustn't be dogmatic in the sense that we refuse to embrace that some of our presentations of what God did in Christ can look awfully like those pagan things, but just prettier in nicer colors, okay? So, so my role is not to tell you what you should believe about that. My role is to kind of put some questioning around that so hopefully we can come to a, a conclusion that, that supports this model, okay? I live here now. This is where I live, uh, I don't deserve it. Um, on, the, on the scale of sainthood and, and piousness, um, I wouldn't qualify. That's why I even like it better on this side. Because you realize it really is a place of grace and is a place of truth. And that we have come to understand original blessing because, again, I'm going to stress this, there was a time when I was inviting God into my life but then there was a time I realized he was inviting me into his life. And that was the difference. That was almost like my second salvation. That he has invited me into his life. And it's a wonderful place of freedom from condemnation and guilt and shame. Um, and always having to somehow live up to an expectation. Because you're a guest. You've become a chosen guest in the house of God. Okay, And it's wonderful. So, um, in looking at all that... Um, we, we put at the edges of this the, the beginnings of time, which were the tree of, good and, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, okay? 
that when we go right back, and again, the, the, the argument of Genesis is not factual accuracy in the sense of um, science and history. The, the point of Genesis is not that. Now, you can argue that, and uh, that's fine. I have no problem with that. But that wasn't the point. The point was a much bigger story. The point was a... As I've taught you, it was this creation was a, was a seven-step process to wholeness from day one to day seven. Day seven, God rested because everything he'd done was finished. So rather than arguing who made what and when and how long was this and what was that, I, I'm much more comfortable with saying whatever it was and however it worked and whatever that means, the promise is you can come to a place where God has finished his work and he rests and if his story is correct, humanity starts living from that place of rest. Man is created on the sixth day. God rests on the seventh day. So our life begins in the rest of his finished work. What he has finished, not what we begin. So we're back here again. See, creation brings us here. Um, I call that original blessing because the first thing God did was he blessed them. He said, multiply, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. Um, most of people's gospel who don't understand this starts in Genesis chapter 3. Now that to me already is a problem. Because Genesis doesn't start in chapter 3, it starts in chapter 1. So therefore for me the predominant truth is original blessing. We started blessed, we still start blessed and reconciliation comes into that blessing. So we don't have to fix this business of original sin. Okay, now, so... The, 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 the story lays that out with two trees. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And the command, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat because in the day you eat of it, you will die. Okay. Death. Now this is going to be important in what we talk about in a moment. Um, of course, again, we've talked a little bit about this. When Adam and Eve did partake of the tree, they didn't die in the sense of, you know, uh. so, so the death was something else. Now, um, I've also heard people say, and I believe this for a long time, that, well, they died spiritually. I, I don't believe that. Because the connection, the communication, the interaction between God and Adam and God and Cain and Abel and God and whoever still goes on in a way that there's no way you could say that they were spiritually dead because God is spirit and they were communicating with God. So, so, so there are problems with that theory, okay? Um, my best stump at this, I don't know if it helps you or doesn't help you, to me, death is simply um, the process that occurs when you are detached from the source of life, Okay? So whether you call it spiritual, natural, whatever, because it, it was happening in every... When you become detached from a source of life, then the inevitable conclusion is death. So the, the, the message here was don't get detached from the source of life. That's the message, okay? The message wasn't argue over what, what it means by in dying you will die, which is the literal Hebrew. Don't be arguing over that. Try and understand what functions death, which is whenever you become disconnected from a source of life, death comes. Okay? And that's still true. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, um, that is true. So, um, 
what else did I want to say on that? Oh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. So, um, access to the tree of life, we can eat as much as we like from here. God himself saying, don't go there, right? Don't even touch it. Now, now we, we, we've said this before, but sometimes it doesn't log in our minds. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, was knowing the difference between right and wrong, okay? So my question has been now for, I guess, the last... Yeah, probably, probably to at least at least 13 or 14 years has been why has the church's predominant message been to try and teach people what is right and wrong when the foundational message of scripture is teaching people right and wrong won't bring life, it'll only ever bring death. Because the, the, the outworking of that is we think if we teach people the law of God, it will stop them sinning. If you, read, if you read the epistles, you'll read that teaching people the law of God makes them sin. Right? Because it, 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 it causes... It, and that's another story. I won't get there because I'm not going to get to what... Okay. So, true of knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong, was never God's method. God's method was life. Now, how do you define life? Well, I don't know really. Life's a wonderful thing, isn't it? We, we can define right and wrong. If I were to go down around the room and say, okay, Chris, tell me what is life. Tell me what is life. We'd, we'd come up with all kinds of different things because really, we, we, we can go from the simplest thing of life is breath to, you know, life is, is a sunny day in an English summer, which you've just had, so get over it. Um... um <coughs> But really, God wanted us to draw us into a place where life is a relational thing. Life in your body is a relationship. Your body can't have life apart from relationship. Every part working together, your brain, your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, your liver, everything working together, eyes, ears, everything working together is what is life. So, so this idea of life was the fact of, of life is relational, okay? And we are drawn all the time in the truth of the true gospel, we're always drawn to a relational measurement of life, a relational measurement. We know what to do because we know who we are and we know who we are because of who he is and when we know that, we don't have to have this big morality thing of right and wrong. Now, we may have to help some people understand some things just because people have different levels of wisdom. Uh, but that's about not what hurts God. It's about what will hurt you because God's too big to be hurt by the petty things that humanity does, see? We, we, we sadly, and Brendan Manning says this many times, we make God as petty and as picky and as judgmental and as irritable as we human beings are, that's what we project onto God. So we think, you know, if I do something wrong, God's going to be really angry. No, God's going to be sad. But we've then portrayed onto him more how we would react to somebody who did that to us rather than who he is. And again, that, that's another story that I'm just trying to talk about this issue of life. So we've got these two, two things out here on the on the perimeters of this. So, I was gonna put some stuff preliminary on here until James 
reminded me I'd have to write it upside down. It was wisdom. So I wasn't even going to attempt to do that. So what I want to do here, I want to re reproduce a little bit of what we've done. I haven't drawn this box on. It's got some sticky stuff on, so that is not relevant. Just ignore it. Imagine it's not there, okay? So if we put our, um, let's put our line in here again. I'm not going to put everything on. Um, but if we put the line in there, I want to make sure I've got room for you to see what I'm going to do here. Um, so if we put our main datum points on our line that divides truth from not truth, and we'll put uh, what's the other one? Resurrection down here. Resurrect. I'm going through a phase of wanting to do double letters for everything, so I want to do two S's as well as two R's. So I keep getting spell check because I've got this thing about putting two letters for all those kind of words, so help me somebody. Right. So there's our line, okay? We've already had that on the other side. <coughs> so, let's just, let's just fill in a couple of things here. Let, let me say a couple of things from, oh, I know what I wanted to say from there. So in here, we, we did draw attention to a very important point that, that we'll carry through now for what we're going to talk about. That um, when you look at the expression of the gospel, which has been around from creation through resurrection, the gospel didn't start at the crucifixion. God preached the gospel to Abraham when he said, in you and your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Hebrews tells us twice about those who formerly had the gospel preached unto them, referring to the children of Israel. And then, of course, there's that other classic scripture that um, how he went and preached to the spirits in prison who died long ago in the time of Noah. That's one of those verses you'll never hear anybody preach about because it doesn't fit this model. You talk about it if you're over here, you think, hmm, I haven't a clue about that, but it sounds like something that God could do in Christ. So we talked about the fact of how the key figure in, in, in our understanding when we look at the New Testament is Abraham. And we looked at the two sacrifices of Abraham, the one where he separates the carcasses and God walks through and God makes covenant with him. We looked at the one where he was sacrificing his son, which was God's way of saying to Abraham, do you really think that's what I want? So he gave him his son back, because that's not what God's like. Um, and what we said in both of those, they were two significant um, um, times that blood was shed to make covenants. So I propose to you that the most important aspect of blood, and also the blood of Jesus, is not blood for cleansing, it's blood for covenant, okay? Which, which changes the, the ball game again. You'll have to go back and listen to some of the things we said on that. Um, but uh, with Abraham, Abraham's covenant, there was no aspect of, of Abraham's covenant dividing those animals that was related to, you've got to do this to pay for your sin, so a covenant was made with him by God with no mention of Abraham, you better do this to pay for your sin. So that puts a question mark. Um, when he has to take his, his son, God says, take your only son Isaac, you know, da 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 da. Um, there's no mention of, of um, a payment for sin, that blood, 
that that sacrifice is about paying for sin. Now, again, I'm, I'm really moving fast here, and I apologize, but it's just to get me to the, the other place. So, in Abraham's dream, when God talked to him, God talked to him about this, the Exodus. 400 years, your people will be in captivity, but I'll bring them out with a strong hand, and I'll lead them in. And you think, well, of all the things God could have said to Abraham when Abraham was asleep and, and God was making covenant with himself to make Abraham a beneficiary, why would God choose one event, 400 years, um, or, well, hundreds of years in the future that would last for 400 years? Uh, and what we discovered was it's because this Passover, Jewish Passover, was very important. And it seems that the focus of covenant was coming to Passover. Now, um, Jewish Passover, what happened? The children of Israel in captivity in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. God says, I'm going to bring you out. Uh, without going into detail, there's all the plagues on Egypt. The last issue is the firstborn in the land start to die. And uh, God speaks to them and says, if you will take a lamb and... You kill the lamb and you put the blood on the, on the lintel of your door and the doorpost. Um, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Now, it's gory, yes. It's messy, yes. Um, but without getting into that, the message was not in Passover, I'll forgive your sins. The message was, I'll set you free from death. So the objective was not their sin, the objective was death. Now remember what happens when you eat of this is death. If we deal with death, we deal with sin basically was the message of the gospel. So Christ died. Why? Because if you deal with death, you deal with sin. So, so Passover becomes a model. Now, again, please go back and listen if you want more detail on this. But fascinatingly, when Christ dies, his crucifixion takes place when? A Passover. Therefore, I propose to you that the model for what happened at the cross is better described by understanding the feast of Passover than what some Christians understand was another feast, which is the feast of atonement. Okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna explain that in a little while. So Passover is the key thing. Passover was never about the lamb that was slain taking care of the sins of the people in Egypt. It was about freeing them from death. And in freeing them from death, automatically whatever their sins deserved had been overlooked, had already been forgiven. He did not deal with them as they deserved nor reward them according to their iniquity, but according to his loving kindness and tender mercy. So we are living in Passover grace. The grace that says... Your sins are already forgiven. What I want to do is break the power of death in you. Okay? So, coming over here. To our new model. Um, let me say a few things I wrote down because these, these are important to what we're doing. There's always a danger in any field that we interpret history and information to support our conclusion. And they're not always allowed to fully determine our conclusion. So, there can be a, um, a tendency within Christian doctrine to interpret history and information in ways that support our conclusions. So, it means we never ask a question about 
is that really what this is about and what should we do about it? So, for example, if you believe the model is built around, within and around your original sin, remember we had that over here, original sin, or original, original sin, Genesis 3, if your model's built around original sin, then you will believe to the left of this line. If your model is built around original blessing, so it's going to influence what you believe, okay? So even this very basic of things, it's going to massively affect what you believe. Now, the mischief that Luther talked about was that if you believe in original sin, you have to make the Bible support theories that bring humanity from a place of original sin to some kind of salvation. If you believe this, you don't have to play those games. And I apologize if it sounds strong about games being played, but they have. So we need to look from two perspectives, okay? And those two perspectives really are, are this one, and I'm gonna put another one here. So if we, if we put on here, um, right, let's put on this side again, I'll just put K for knowledge of good and evil. And we put over here the tree of life. Tree of life. And these are at one end. So, so on this end, and let's call this, I'll use some red on here. Let's call this, let's call this an eternal perspective. Eternal perspective, okay? The reason I say that is because everything on here is based in God. It's all based in Him. Creation, incarnation, resurrection is all based in God. This is where this is the flow of eternal life that comes down through these things. Whenever we encounter God's word of creation, God's manifested word incarnation, God's resurrection, there's always an eternal perspective that's coming down to us. It's not limited to anything in this earth, right? It's not bound by any of the natural rules of the universe, okay? It can't be. If resurrection is true, it can't be bound by natural rules of the universe. If one of the process of incarnation was a virgin birth, it can't be bound by natural rules, so this is an eternal perspective. But what we're gonna do now is, is connect these two here, okay? So let's come across here. So we have two perspectives here, that now in the context of time, we are wrestling with living at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or a restored relationship feeding from the tree of life. Okay, so I want to call this for now, let's call this, let's call this a time perspective. Okay, now, time's an interesting thing because in here there is no time. Now, I showed you that by saying, if we're going to believe scripture, when was the lamb 
slain, to use biblical language. And we know from the Bible it was here. But we know that the cross occurred down here. So we talked about the fact of, of, of uh, uh, stars in space. How when we say, oh, they're 100 light years away, it means that when you see it in the sky tonight, you're seeing something that occurred 100 years ago. So even in our natural world, there are illustrations of how it's possible for us to experience something here that actually has been a reality from way before we ever experienced it. So, in the beginning of creation, there was no time. Now, I know you might say, but it says the evening and the morning were the first day. Um, it deliberately switches the, the, the frame around rather than morning into evening, from evening to morning, to start messing with our heads to say, but days don't go from evening to morning, they go from morning to evening. But, uh, and the seasons, what you've got though is in early creation there was a cyclical model, time was a cycle, it was a, it was a circle that went around and around because nothing died. So... What we have now is linear time. Linear time has a beginning and it has an ending. And when we live this side of the line, people often try and put, put their understanding of the kingdom of God into a linear perspective, beginning and an ending. Uh, when actually it's operating on this line, which is a cyclical, it, it always has been and will go on forever and ever. And the rule of God and of his Christ will never end and so we believe in the restoration of all things because of that. However, on this time, <clears throat> on this line, until, until death comes, <clears throat> time doesn't exist. Because death produces an end. And once you have an end, it means you've had a beginning. And if you've had a beginning and an end, you've got linear time. So we have this line that now is the one that we battle on, which is... Tree of knowledge of good and evil, death and all of this, and tree of life, restoration of all things, coming back into the blessing of God. Now, the reason I wanted to draw that, as we have done, is because um, if you notice, something's happened where these two lines intersect. This is what's happened where the two lines intersect. Can you see it? That's a rubbish cross, isn't it? That's a, Kel it's a Celtic cross. <laughs> Sorry about that. So what we have there is an intersection point. Now, if we start to put some, some stuff on, we've got our original sin. Um, and um, so, so that eternal, the vertical line, let's call that eternal, let's call the horizontal line a time perspective. So... The three datum points that we have on the vertical line are creation, incarnation, and resurrection. Now, something interesting happens on here because this is a problem because of a tree. This is blessing because of a tree. And the intersection here, the third datum point, happens on a tree. So we've got an interesting thing starts to happen biblically. We got here, 
we get the tree of, tree of knowledge of good and evil where all the problem begins to start when we live by right and wrong. But then, just catch a hold of this. This is, this is as interesting because, because in, in um, of course, that's Genesis 2.9 is this one. And then if you go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation, it talks about the tree of life which straddles the river of life in whatever it is that John's trying to describe mystically about the kingdom which is to come, we have again the tree of life. So we have right at the beginning tree, right at the end tree, and then listen to what it says in um, um, Acts 5 verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. So their concept of cross was a tree. You hung him on a tree. Now, here's another scripture, Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So, on this datum line of, of time, we have three marker points, just like we did on here, three datum points of measurement. One is, what was the issue in the beginning? The other is, what is the prescribed issue at the end, which is this, and in between, we have this other tree here, which, which is how the cross is described, where Jesus died. So, let's, let's look at that scripture a little, bit, a little bit more. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So, the question there would be, what was the curse? Well, let me look at verse 10. So that was Galatians 3.13. Let me jump back to verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Now, if you remember, that was what was the issue on this side. If we try to mix the law and the gospel, works and faith, that's what creates the mystery because what causes the curse is the law. The law brings death, therefore the curse is from the law, the curse is death. So, so Christ redeemed them are coming a curse for us. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now, the... the, the the widest interpretation of book of the law in most theological circles is all that's from uh, in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What, what's known as the Pentateuch, the first five books. So it's not just talking about the Ten Commandments, it's talking about everything that was under the law um, ultimately if you are relying on that you are under a curse because cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So I'm going to propose another angle for you here. If Christ became our curse, then was he being cursed because he did not continue to do everything written in the book of the law? Because observation of the law was not the means 
by which Jesus was declared righteous. Okay, we know that. So it was not because he observed the law that he was declared righteous. He was not justified before God by anything contained in the law. Now verse 11, and I'll break this down for you a little more in a minute. Verse 11 of Galatians 3. Clearly, no one who is justified before God, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Now, a couple of things we've got to do here. In the law, I'm going to move this up a bit because I'm going to run out of space. So we know original sin is there, okay. Let's put that back on up here. Oops. Original sin. What I'm trying to show you is that in the law, all the things that pertain to keeping us separate from God were contained. They were all contained in the law. So in the law, under the law, we had the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle, oops, the tabernacle was the meeting place that the children of Israel had in the wilderness that God talked to them about to house what it was that he was going to show them and demand them to do. But all I believe with the process of showing them what could never really work for them to bring them back to the place of life. So we also had the sacrifices. Because in the tabernacle system, it was heavily reliant on sacrifices, blood sacrifices for just about everything. So we'll talk about some of the elements of that the next time we're together. Uh, there were the sacrifices. There, were, um, there was the fact that you were never perfected. Hebrews tells us this particularly. So although all this stuff was going on, you were never perfected. There was always lack. You never achieved the place that you wanted to achieve. And... Um, uh, then, of course, from this, ultimately, then we come out of this, we finish up with the temple. Right, so that's, that's that system on that side. Now, this is described as being a curse. I want you to get your head around that. This system is a curse. And we go back again to what we said that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law was a curse. By becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's our datum point. It's where these two lines meet. All who rely on observing the law are under the curse, for it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So therefore, when Christ comes, he breaks the model of reliance upon the law. And I'm going to show you how he does that in just a moment, okay? Um, so, so no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Now, so remember we talked about all this happens at Passover. Oops. All happens at Passover. Now, was Passover part of the law? Or was Passover before the law? It 
Was, Pass was Passover after the law? Was Passover before the law? Think about it. When did it come? It came to Moses. When? When they were in Egypt to deliver them from Egypt. The law was given three months after the children of Israel left Egypt. So our model here, although within the law they were told they encouraged to continue to keep the Passover, the instruction on Passover was never part of the law. Okay? Now, within the law we have probably the main feast within the law is this one. The Feast of Atonement. At the Feast of Atonement, once a year, the priest would take a bull, he'd sacrifice the bull, the blood from the bull was to take care of his own sins, then he would have two goats, he'd take one of the goats, they would cast lots for the goats, one of the goats was going to be unlucky, one of them was going to be lucky. Potentially, depends how you define luck. Um, because one of the goats would be, they would speak the sins of the people over the goat by putting their head, hands on its head and that goat would be taken by somebody out into a wilderness place away from the camp and would be released signifying that your sins have been spoken over the goat and that goat's pushed away. Now that spawned a principle that we know as the scapegoat if you've ever heard that, uh, that phrase that he became the scapegoat. Um, because he was the one taking the blame. Um, a lot could be said about that. The other one, however, the other poor goat, bless its heart, um, uh, didn't get taken and released, but he was going to be sacrificed, and it's going to be sacrificed for the people. Now, during that process, that it could only be enacted by one man, the high priest, and uh, he would have to go into the in a, in a place of this tabernacle. This tabernacle was a compound which had an outer area and then it had a, an inner area inside that which was called the holy place and then inside that, at the end of that, was a place called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies you were never allowed to go in. Only the high priest could go in one time a year and the one time he could go in was at the time of, of atonement. And uh, he would go in to offer this sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, it was all difficult because when he went in, he had to take incense, so the place was full of smoke, basically. So the idea being, when you look at it in Exodus through and into Leviticus, that, that um, he was kind of, he, God couldn't see him because if God looked up, he'd have to kill him, kind of. You know, get the impression we're sacrificing, don't kill me. I come in, fill the place with smokers. And uh, in there, he would come to a, a place called, um, which was, the, which was the, um, uh, the, the altar in there, was the, was the ark, okay? And uh, in that place, was the, the ark of the covenant was there. And um, he had a lid on it, a covering, with, with two angels built with their wings overshadowing it and the priest would take the blood and he would offer it on that lid on top of the ark which is called the mercy seat and uh, that kind of in, 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 in that model kind of um, 
put you okay with God for 12 months kind of thing. That was an installment. And uh, for the next 12 months, you, you, there were still hundreds of other sacrifices needed to be made. But like that, that was the big one. That was the biggie for the, for the people. So, so the issue is that I'm just taking our scripture here that, that, that uh, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Cursed is everyone who, who doesn't continue into the... Because in the law is where we have this this business of atonement. So he was made a curse for us because he didn't keep this process. He released a different process. That process he was releasing was freedom from death by a, by a Passover model, not by an atonement model. Now let me, let me put another couple of things on, 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 on here because... Um, this ultimately finished in the temple and then along comes Jesus and uh, he makes this incredible he makes this incredible statement. Okay. He's looking at the temple and, uh, and he's, he's talking to the people in John 2.19 and Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now they were saying, oh, but this temple, you know, took so long to build and it's been amazing. But um, of course it says Jesus wasn't talking about the bricks and mortar temple, but he was actually talking about his body. Or in other words, in Christ, this system was being completely replaced. And in AD 70, when when uh, Titus led his armies into Jerusalem, they completely destroyed Jerusalem, the city, and they also destroyed the temple, okay? Um, and that temple's never been rebuilt, and there are some people who are looking for, they think the great sign of the end times will be the rebuilding of the Jewish temple, but uh, the, th- the issue is that this issue here was, was bringing an end to all that system, when we try and maintain that system, all we're trying to maintain is a process of curse. So, on the other side, we have one who comes with grace and truth. He comes with grace and truth. And the temple that is there now is built after the same model of this tabernacle. So, it has a holy of holies and... What happens here now is, is the curtain is torn. The curtain that separates the curtain that separated in that old model becomes torn. So when Jesus dies on the cross, the, the, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Supernaturally, miraculously, the curtain is torn because he's showing that in this, he is breaking us out of this was all a curse, but Jesus was not going to live under that curse. Now, the problem is we want to somehow in Christian uh, uh, theology take Jesus and make him live back under that curse. We want him to live all these things out in us. So we still want a law, we still want a tabernacle system, we still want priests, we still want sacrifices that bring us into his presence. We still want to feel we're forgiven but never perfected because we live under that and we still want to have a temple system and we, we're not understanding that in grace and truth the curtain is torn and Jesus said, destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. I believe it was a two-edged prophecy 
destroy this temple, but this temple is going to be raised in three days. So after the death of Jesus, of course, three days, he was risen, which shows that the temple he was always concerned about was, was, uh, was the temple of his body. So the truth is we get, we get over here the curtain torn, um, we get sacrifice, but it's the one sacrifice for all, uh, and we get then... Hebrews tells us in chapter 10 that we're perfected forever. Perfected forever. Because of that one sacrifice. Okay? Perfected forever. And, um, and that if you, if you then look at um, 1 Corinthians 9, 6.19, I think it is, um, and Hebrews 9.21, there is, there is the evidences now that there is a new temple Okay, and we are the temple. So, so this system has been replaced by another system here. Now, let me, let me move on a little bit. So, so clearly the point I'm trying to make, and you know, this, I'm, I'm wrestling this through as we make it, is that what happened here is that a curse was being broken at the intersection of time and eternity. A curse was being broken. And that curse that was being broken was the curse of the law. This was all that was under the law, and so much of that models what we have tried to build, and that's the curse that he was breaking. Now, also in there, there's the, the curse of death and all that stuff that, um, you know, that, that, um, that we've dealt with. Now, of course, um, here's the issue then. Um, so... This side, all of this, all that ever focuses on is unrighteousness. Which has become the big focus of this gospel. So how do you spot this? How do you spot on this side of the lounge? How do you spot where actually the real work that Christ did on the cross has never been understood? When you see the gospel of unrighteousness, you say, what do you mean by the gospel of unrighteousness? It's the gospel that is always majoring on how unrighteous people are. Rather than this side of the gospel, which always majors on how righteousness has been given, righteousness has been revealed, right, us, 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 revealed, only needs to be recognized, it's there. So we have a gospel of unrighteousness and a gospel of righteousness. Over here we have a Holy Spirit who convicts you of, of uh, sin. Right over here, let me get, in, in John, right, he talks about the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. On this side, we hear a Holy Spirit who points out our sin, shows us how unrighteous we are, and the judgment we will come under. But when you understand it, the word is, he convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The objective always was, the sin is not to recognize that you have already been made righteous, and that judgment is not on you, but it says the prince of this world stands condemned. So both of these are extremely distinct but we've tried to mix them too much. Now, 
I think to make this work now, from where I stand now, we have to deliberately misread many things in order to make this work. So we come up with theories, and of course, we, Chris and I have talked a little bit about uh, the various theories known as atonement theories, which are uh, a desire to try and explain what was happening here. Well, I'm giving you another theory. Let's call it the Passover theory, okay? Let, let, let's look at this through the model of Passover because I propose to you that, that we say that the, the Bible in its wisdom is prophetically driven. So for me, if atonement, this business of lots of blood and specific blood and and if, if that's at the core, then for me, prophetically, Jesus would not have died at the Feast of Passover. He would have died on the Feast of Atonement, so we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that what he was representing was the model of this. But I propose to you, because he died at Passover, what he was doing is drawing us away from that, so he's taking us pre-law... Here, so Passover comes here. He's taking us pre-law. He's saying you never had to live under the law. What was happening in the law was never the model, but what was happening here in the Passover lamb who was breaking the power of death in you was the issue. So fear and condemnation and shame have no place in this true gospel. Control has no part in this true gospel. Over here, everything is control. Everything is system. It's all about systems, okay? Systems. So you enter through it. Let me put that on here. Systems. You ought to be sick of systems. The problem is that the rest of you, other than Chris, find most of your security in systems. Give me a system. Tell me which boxes to take. Over here, the issue is not systems. The issue over here is people. Okay, let me tell you the difference. Difference between systems and people is that systems, you enter through it. You enter through the system. But when it's about people, it means you enter through him, through Christ, right? Through him. You have nowhere else to go because there's no system that serves you. So you're back here at the tree of life. This keeps you away from the tree of life because it keeps you at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because systems can only work on the knowledge of something like good and evil. It has to have right and wrongs and good and evils and tick boxes. and So it only works here. So when we desire systems, we can never get away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when we understand it's not systems but people, it all happens through him. So we come back to the tree of life because we're not reliant upon systems for our identity or our success. Now, a couple of other things that we, um, um, that we need to just, just look at here. Okay, So, something happens here in this amazing thing that happens at... Passover, what it, whatever it was that happened enabled Jesus to say, it is finished, okay? 
Very important. So whatever it was that was going on here, it was finished. Now, I know that there's stuff to talk about, you know, Jesus and, and, and certain verses in the Bible that relate to this. That's where we're actually going, so we can explain some of those, and you'll see why my explanation is another way, because we've understood a little bit more about the Passover principle. But, but here at the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, okay? It occurs here. Um, not here, right? And not after the ascension. So whatever it was that being accomplished here, in its own right was done before the resurrection ever occurred and ever took place. It is finished. Now, of course, that relates back to her in creation where uh, on the seventh day, you know, God says, it is finished, it's done, it, 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 it's over, it, it, it's complete. So, so um, my point on this is when Jesus said it is finished, it means that whatever was happening, that was the last word on something, okay? So, so if the cross was the last word, this was the last word on something, Just like, just like Passover was the last word on the captivity in Egypt, it was the last word. The death of Egypt, the bondage, the slavery was over. It was the last word. It was finished. It was done. On this last word down here, it is finished. It means the cross was the last word. So if we take another definition that we've said that, that, that hope is the confident expectation that the last word has not yet been spoken... So, so hope is the confident expectation the last word has not yet been spoken. If the last word has been spoken, you don't need hope about the thing that the last word's been spoken about. Because what you have then is you live in confidence and assurance of all the things coming together under Christ because of the cross. The, la the cross doesn't give us hope because the cross is the last word on the issue of humanity being given restoration with the Father. It's the last word. So we don't come to a place of hope. We come to a place of confident assurance in the work of the cross. It was never meant to leave us wondering. It was meant to leave us rejoicing because the last word had been spoken. We don't now have to hope about the restoration of all things. We have a confidence and an assurance of the restoration of all things. We live in a confidence. That's why in Hebrews it says, now with boldness and confidence and liberty we approach the, the throne through the blood that Jesus shed for us. Okay, so there's another couple of things happen here. And again, I'm, I'm kind of, feel as though I'm bundling my way through it, but it's because I'm working this out as we go along. Uh, what happens in all of this is we finish up with we finish up with slaves and servants. A servant really is somebody who is a slave under better conditions. But it's still the same. Whereas over here, the difference that we have is that we become sons, I know it's a bit low here, I hope you can see it, and friends. 
Slaves and servants, sons and friends. Again, what we're trying to model here is that these two things are two completely different stories. The wonder is that there is a point where they meet. And uh, where they meet, we join the line of eternity. We join it. Now, here's the miracle, okay? Um, The gospel works, and the cross still does what it was supposed to do, regardless of which side you come to it. So this is not an issue of there are some people who are not really, you know, received the grace or the life of God because they don't believe right. Okay? The cross works. The cross doesn't work because you believe that the cross works. The cross works because the cross works. What Jesus did works because what Jesus did works. So the issue is, it's not a matter of if you come from here, you're saved, you're not saved, and if you come from here, you are saved. It's an issue of thank God for the cross, thank God for grace, thank God that it is finished, regardless of who we are. So this is not about whether this is for one side and not for the other. This is about how you live in the revelation of that, and whether you experience the blessing of God under a righteousness revealed, or whether you live consistently under the condemnation and guilt of an unrighteousness that's never really resolved, that we come on Sundays and say, well, just thank God Jesus died for me, rather than sin is done, death is finished, life is in me, and, and, and we are living in an ever-expanding kingdom of righteousness that God is revealing and bringing into the world, and that through creation and incarnation and resurrection in me, God is letting that expand and touch people's lives and bring revelation to others. So, a couple, um, couple of things I want to just read and then I'm going to shut up because we'll come back at this again for some other bits that we, um, we've got to chew over. So, let me, let me just give you a couple of... I mean, very brief, because again, I, the danger was I didn't want to get into too much uh, theological depth because it to some degree it wasn't going to help you it might harm you so I do just want to give a brief explanation of this thing atonement because we have to come back at this a little bit Um, um, it was an event in the law calendar okay so we've already explained that when the law came the tabernacle was established and all these various things that you had to do um, basically to appease the anger of God were introduced. Now, I've said to you this, this is sometimes difficult to get a hold of, but I believe that old model was giving the people what they really thought they wanted to show them that what they thought they wanted and was the way wasn't the way, in the same that way back in the garden, Eve thought that if she listened to the serpent she would achieve what she was looking to achieve, so God had to let her go ahead and do it to show that that's not going to work. So, so let me read you just this about atonement. <clears throat> the English word, okay? It's obvious that the English word atonement does not correspond etymologically. Now, etymologically means that in how words are formed and how words are built up, it doesn't directly tie into the Greek or the Hebrew, okay? 
It doesn't tie with any Hebrew or Greek word which it translates. Furthermore, the Greek words in both the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and the New Testament do not correspond exactly to the Hebrew words. Especially is it true that the root idea of the most frequently employed Hebrew word, which is cover, is not found in any of the Greek words employed. So really, atonement in its Hebrew word was to cover. Okay? Um, these remarks apply to both verbs and substantives. The English word is derived from the phrase at one, atonement, at one month, and signifies in its etymologically how the word is built up and made up when you break it down and what made the word what it is. It signifies harmony of relationship or unity of life. It is a rare instance of a theological term, and like all purely English terms employed in theology, takes its meaning, this is why I wanted to read this, not from its origin, but from theological content of the thinking of the continental and Latin-speaking schoolmen who employed such English terms as seemed most nearly to convey to the hearers and readers their ideas. So we have a word that's been central to what many of us were raised with that is not a direct reflection of the Hebrew or the Greek, but actually in its shape of English more reflects what in theological terms uh, seemed most ne nearly to convey to the hearers and readers the, their ideas. Yeah. Not only was no effort made to convey the original Hebrew and Greek meanings by means of English words, but no effort was made toward uniformity in translating of Hebrew and Greek words by the English equivalents. So, and this is why I kind of, uh, I hope I haven't confused you too much, but to show you that some of these things that we have built central have been shaped to some degree to lead us on a confirmed line of belief that we needed to believe. Now, my contention with you as a people is most of that belief was shaped on this side of that line. Therefore, the mischief Luther was talking about comes through all these things, which is why I'm saying to you, I looked at this and thought, hang on a minute, what about Passover? Well, because Passover doesn't allow you to do with gospel and church and systems and structures what this allows because Passover was let my people go. Right? Let them go. Let them go. Of course they went out with the frying pan into the fire, left all the stuff of Egypt, and found themselves wrestling with the law. Why? Because God was saying, listen, you might have walked out of Egypt, but you're anything but free. Because you are still in yourself what you were physically in Egypt. You are in spirit in yourself. And my objection is that most of the church has been kept here in this place. Okay, When it is for freedom that Christ set us free was Paul's message. So you can't settle your understanding just merely by a lexicon. A lexicon is a Greek dictionary. Okay. It is, at once, it is at once clear that no mere word study can determine the Bible teaching concerning atonement. Even when first employed for expressing Hebrew and Christian thought, 
these terms, like all other religious terms, already had a content that had grown up with their use. And it is by no means easy to tell how far heathen conceptions might be imported into our theology by a rigidly etymological study of terms employed. In other words, we've become so familiar with these terms that now most of us wouldn't have a clue how to separate the heathen concepts from the God concepts because we were fed these in a certain way. Okay? In any case, such a study could only yield a dictionary of terms. Whereas what we seek is a body of teaching, a circle of ideas, Whatever words and phrases or combinations of words and phrases have been employed, employed to express the teaching. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to teach, find a body of teaching, a way to look at this that can bring us to understand in a better way uh, what it is that God is showing us. Now he also says it's not chiefly a study in theology. There is even greater danger of making the study of the atonement a study in dogmatic theology. Now you understand what a dogma is, right? It's not, it's not a female dog, a dogma. A dogma is when you're entrenched, that's it, you're dogmatic, you're, you're immovable. It's, 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 so the study of atonement is, should not be a study in dogmatic theology. The frequent employment of the expression, the atonement, that's in, for those of you who've been around church any length of time, not necessarily this church, but the church at large, you will have, you will have frequently heard how, how the phrase atonement is used. Um, and, and that shows this tendency of making it a study in dogmatic theology because actually it's not mentioned that much in the Bible. In fact, in the New Testament, you've got a couple of mentions of it and then we've got questions to ask about that. Now, it doesn't mean atonement's not important and understanding it's not important. I'm just proposing to you that that was not the key work of the cross here, where this intersects, this line of intersection that brings us with the, back to the eternal does not intersect with that, with that issue. So, um, oh, let me just finish this off. Okay, so... The work of Christ in reconciling the world to God has occupied so central a place in Christian dogmatics that the very term atonement has come to have a theological rather than a practical atmosphere. And it is by no means easy for the student or even the seeker after the saving relation with God to pass beyond the accumulated interpretation of the atonement and learn of atonement. In other words, he says, it's difficult for me and it's difficult for you because it's become so affected by all kinds of thinking now that we don't even know what the heathen parts of it are. Yeah, the mischief. A bit like I said to you about the, you know, about the, the nicely presented child sacrifice model to appease the angry gods. You know, we, I never thought of that growing up. Never crossed my mind. I thought, it, was it is a beautiful story, but if that's the model, it's not different. If it's not different, I don't think it's the Abba of Jesus. So he's saying this about how we grab a hold of this. So I'm nearly done. Uh, the other word that, that, that they use is a, a word called propitiation, um, which I'm not going to bother you with all the, the stuff on that, but... The thing about that is often propitiation is used um, in place of atonement in some places. But what's interesting, it's a Latin word, okay? 
It's not even a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's a Latin word. So we have translated Christ became our propitiation, right? Which, which has been used to change with the word atonement. The reason I'm mentioning this is not to get too deep, but to say it's a Latin word, listen, that brings into its English use the atmosphere of heathen rites for winning the favor or averting the anger of the gods. So why did we choose the word propitiation? Because we had this model. So propitiation fits beautifully if you need rights for winning the favor of or averting the anger of the gods. So these issues we have to wrestle with, but I'm trying to show you again that this model of a, of a, a, um, a Passover understanding of the cross, I think gives us the, the best, the nearest, the most amazing revelation that ties us through here. Now, there's one other thing we need to talk about next time we're together, because we've gone on long enough today and I will write it in here and that's blood okay so what's all that about okay what's all that about because you know we've got all these blood sacrifices and then we've got Jesus dies on the cross and he gives his blood you know so what's all that about why 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 blood why is blood important at all because some would argue that that no blood was necessary at the cross because really all Jesus was doing was instead of, instead of uh, fighting his enemies, he was defeating his enemies by, by submitting to them, being merciful. Um, what was that? Non-violent. Non-violent. I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I don't think, I think there's too much blood in, <laughs> in the Bible, you know, blood on the ceiling, blood on the doors, there's blood, on, there's blood everywhere. Um, that it it can't be overlooked as simple as that. But, so what we'll deal with next time is the fact there is a wonderful revelation that ties in with all of this um, about about why blood was necessary and why we should honour the blood of Jesus and why even in the communion we, we take the bread to celebrate his body and we take the blood of the new covenant because blood is important but we'll talk about that next time. So I hope I've not confused you too much because I've kind of wrestled my way into this today. And uh, it will become clearer as we go along and um, some people who might not be you will get the even clearer version of this. So we've been Bunsen burnering it tonight in the laboratory. Put, throw a bit of this in, try a bit of that, see where we get. What I am convinced about is as the more you understand this, the, the salvation of God in Christ becomes greater. Right? We, we thought through some of the ways we explained it, we were making it amazing, but actually we were minimizing it because it was much better and it was much bigger and it was much greater than that. I like the terminology the guy used that sometimes we've lost sight of where heathen rites have complicated our understanding of Scripture and then... Because the more you have those, they become your normality and you just, you just pass them on. But I applaud you for, for being willing to wrestle with these things with me because a lot of people aren't, okay? You know, I, in some places I could make five statements about this and they'd want me out the door. You know, because it's like you can't chat. We've, you know, we've always believed in this. Is, well, a lot of what people tell you is the always, 
always an historic and never, uh, was never the historic and always. Uh, it's only historic and always as in the context of this is what we believe and we're going to prove that by telling you this. So, so anyway, we're going to live here. And uh, we'll do blood a little bit next time. So Father, help us, we pray, to get a grasp on this. And we honor you, we bless you. And we thank you for a righteousness revealed. We thank you for the restoration of all things. We thank you for reconciliation. You have reconciled us to the Father. You've reconciled us to the tree of life. You've reconciled us to the blessing that was ours always originally. And for that we thank you. And I should help us to keep living in it and sharing it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, we're done. Enjoy. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.